All right, good morning, everybody. You know, this wasn't by choice. This is what it's like to be a sojourning church. Uh, we somehow uh, missed getting the building reserved for the entire year. And uh, so there's a wedding going on there today. Uh, so here we are out here in our tent, uh, ready to study the Bible. And so I thought it would be appropriate this morning. We're actually going to look at the tabernacle and the temple uh, as it goes through the entire Bible and use this kind of as a, a walking illustration. But of course, today is Mother's Day. And so we want to honor the moms here in the, in the tent. We want to pray for you. And we want to we just recognize today the, the great gift that you are to the family, the great gift that you are to the church, the great contributions that moms make. And also we want to honor and, and grieve with those today who uh, have either lost babies or possibly you're here and, and in your past, uh, you possibly aborted a baby. Uh, we want to recognize you as well and just honor you and comfort you. Uh, so if you would, would all the moms in the house just stand, please? If you're a mama, go ahead and stand. Yeah. Awesome. I can tell you uh, while you're standing that uh, legitimately, uh, my wife is the most amazing human being on this planet. And I watch her with the kids. I watch her do what she does. And uh, I just am absolutely in awe of her. And I know that all you mamas are thought of the same way by your families. Would you guys just stretch out a hand to all of these women? Place a hand on the women around you. Because in every sense of the word, whether you've had children or whether you've not had children, the women of this world are absolutely amazing. And we want to pray for you, give thanks for you. Father, thank you so much for all the moms. Thank you for their tenderness. Thank you for their commitment. Thank you for their sacrifice. God, we pray that on this Mother's Day, you would so reach richly and deeply bless each of the moms in this space and in this place. Lord, we pray for the gals today who have lost babies. We pray for the ones who are longing to have a baby. Father, that you would comfort them, that you would still their hearts, that they would, that they would find their peace and their joy and their ease in you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to multiply the piles of babies at Taproot Church. We pray for families to be growing and to be strengthened, to be encouraged in the Bible and the word of God. And to continue, Lord, to develop a, a counterculture community where families are united and stand strong until death parts them. And so, Lord, on this day, may our mothers just feel richly blessed and encouraged in every way. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. You gals can grab your seats. I want to give you guys an update on where we're at with the building project. It's... It's truly a wilderness wandering thing that we have uh, stepped into here with this building project. We knew that we were stepping out by faith and there have been certainly moments of great fear and trepidation, but God continues to meet us every step of the way. And so I mentioned last week and I have been mentioning over the past weeks that with this building project, uh, we have come up short financially on particular projects that we can't do uh, ourselves. 
And so we are raising those funds. Uh, last week, somebody generously provided $40,000 and said that we will match forty grand. And so within one week, $15,000 came in immediately. So yeah, we can totally... We can totally praise God for that. Um, and then, of course, in any wilderness wandering situation, <laughs> H&R Block, the guys blew through a wall and they blew asbestos all over H&R Block. So it shut down the entire project for at least these next two weeks. And we're talking anywhere between fifteen dollars to $18,000 of cleanup. Yes! Praise God! <laughs> so it's one step, three steps, five steps forward, one step back. And I was talking with Will this morning, and it really is a wilderness wandering experience. You get so close to the promised land, like in the parking lot of the promised land, and you're like looking at it, and God's like, no, not yet. And you have one of two choices that you can make, that we could make as a church. Frustration, uh, grumpiness, bitterness, which is what the Israelites did. Or we can be the church of Jesus Christ and we can just rejoice and we can say, thank you, Father, that you're guiding us on this crazy trip. We are trusting you. And I, I, I with all of my heart, believe soon and very soon, we're not going to be out here underneath this tent. We're going to be inside those walls, worshiping Jesus, serving our city. And so I want to encourage each of you, a couple things. Uh, continue to rejoice in the various troubles and trials of your lives. God is using those things to humble us, to test us, to refine us, and continue to pray about what part God might have you play in getting us into this property, getting us finally into this, into this building, whether it's giving financially or if you have a particular skill set that you can serve with, there's going to be a lot of projects that are going to be coming up the closer we get to getting into the building. So please be considering how you can be involved. With all that said, we're going to travel through the Bible. We are currently in a series of sermons entitled The Waters, The Wilderness, and The World to Come. Today we're at week number five. So in the first two weeks, we started in Genesis chapter one. And we laid out a somewhat controversial position on the book of Genesis. Stating that in Genesis 1-1, God creates everything. And from Genesis chapter one, verse two... Through chapter 2, God prepares a particular land for a particular people that he's going to live in covenant relationship with. Now, from that foundation, we have been drawing out particular themes that travel through the whole meta-narrative, the big arcing story of the Bible. So last week, we drew out of Genesis 1 the theme of waters. And we traveled through the Bible, looking at how God, from Genesis 1, parted the waters and prepared a particular place to live in relationship with his people, to Exodus, where God parted the waters, delivering the nation of Israel through that judgment, through that darkness, through that confusion. We, we followed that trajectory of the waters all the way through to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, where the prophet John says that there was no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. No more chaos, no more darkness. Today, we want to pick up on a second of these particular themes. And next week, we'll close by looking at the wilderness. But I thought it would be absolutely appropriate, since we're under this big, gigantic tent, that we would talk about the tabernacle and the temple. 
And the way they did is carried all the way through the Bible. So you guys ready to rock and roll? We're going to go Genesis 1 to Revelation. Kind of, maybe. (laughs) One of you is ready. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, please bless this word and help the church to understand the Bible and to know, uh, Father, your work in it. God, help us to read the story and our part in the story as characters in this story. And so fill us now and guide us with your goodness. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. At this point, God has created dinosaurs, seas, skies, lands, suns, sunsets, sunrises, solar systems. God has created everything. Then he has taken six days and he's prepared this particular land, which we defined as the Garden of Eden, which actually is the promised land. The promised land was the place that God would give to the nation of Israel. And it would be that particular place where he would live in communion and in covenant relationship with them. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we read this. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. It's an interesting question to ask. Why would God rest on the seventh day? Now for us, as modern Western thinkers, there's not a lot of meaning to the number seven. And there's not a lot of meaning to the idea of rest. We like the idea of seven days a week. Working, getting things done, and rest is not a big part of our particular mind frame. But for any ancient reader of this text, for anybody in the Middle Near East, or in the Near East, or in the ancient Near East, any ancient person that was reading this text would read, oh, there's six days of work, and then there's a seventh day of rest. Oh, there's a God who is doing something for six days, and on the seventh day, He's resting. Every Near East ancient reader would read that and say, oh, you know what this is? This is a temple. This is a temple. The common spiritual language of the ancient Near East dealt with particular days of work. And then when the God that was doing the work was done doing the work, was prepared to meet with his people, they would use the language of rest. In a temple. And the temple would be the meeting place where God would reside. The God would reside. And that God, through particular stipulations and requirements, would meet with his people and either bless or judge his people. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are the story of God's first temple. It's the story of God coming to commune with his people, meet with his people, reside with his people. And what's interesting to me is that the temple language is all about the intermingling of heaven and earth. We, in our modern American way of thinking about things, due to bad theology, think of heaven as out there, far away, separated. But the Bible is unapologetic about the fact that there is a dimension a metaphysical, spiritual dimension all around us, not out there, not far away, but actually intertwined and entangled and influencing our current ways and our current world. The Bible teaches that heaven and earth 
are actually interlocked. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 1 is the perfect interlocking of heaven and earth. The supernatural and the natural. God and his creation. Heaven and earth all as one. And God resting in this temple setting. To further develop this idea of Genesis 1 being a temple setting, Adam and Eve are told in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that they are to work and cultivate the land. They're to prepare it. They're to worship within the midst of it. That work and cultivate idea is the exact same words that are used later when the temple priests are told to guard the gate and set up the sacrifices and prepare the processes whereby God will meet with his people. To work and cultivate are the same words used for the priests in the temples later on. So Adam and Eve are priests in a temple, meeting with God, obeying him, loving him, worshiping him. Heaven and earth intermingled, interlocked, working together. There's no separation. And the primary lesson as we get ready to move through the Bible on this, and I'm only going to take about 20 minutes to do it, I hope. Is that God wants to meet with you. God is not far removed from any one of us. God wants to be with you. God's intention, God's purpose, the reason that you are breathing air and alive is because he wants to dwell with you. His presence wants to rest upon you and in you. The whole reason he has made you is to be with you. And so what we have in Genesis 1 is that perfect temple idyllic state. Adam and Eve living in perfect communion with God the Father. God walking in the cool of the garden. Imagine living in the deserts of the Near East and and the language is in the cool of the garden. It's rich and full and comfortable and peaceable. This is what God's intention is for us as his people. The problem is, as we all know, the story goes on to chapter 3 and there's a serpent in the garden. There's a deceiver. So Adam and Eve are deceived by this serpent and sin occurs. Sin separates Adam and Eve from the presence of God. So now, heaven and earth, it's as if there's a tear. Now, don't think of it as heaven removes and goes way out there and we go off to heaven. Instead, what happens is Adam and Eve die spiritually. They're now blinded to that metaphysical, supernatural dimension. It's not gone. They're just dead to it. They're no longer in the presence of God. They're cut off. They're separated. And that sense of peace, that sense of security, that sense of well-being, they die to that because now... God is separated from them and heaven and earth are torn and, and segregated and separated and no longer can they see and be influenced by that. So for the rest of the book of Genesis, rather than God leaving Adam and Eve in their state and completely wiping them out, God over and over and over mercifully comes to his people and starts over with them because his intention is to be with them, just like with you. Now hear this, it's a very practical point. What we learn from the book of Genesis is that no matter how much wickedness we may fall into, no matter how many times we may eat that apple being deceived by sin and Satan, no matter how many times we may rebel and separate ourselves from God, 
God will continue to come after us. Like we learned last week, he came after us in Noah. He floods the whole world, but he spares one man because he's going to start over with those that he wants to be with him. Noah messes up, so he starts over with Abraham, promising Abraham, through your sons, all the world will be blessed. Abraham messes up, Isaac messes up, Jacob messes up. Then we reach the 12 patriarchs, and the 12 patriarchs are sold into slavery. They end up in Egypt, and for 400 years, they multiply in Egypt. And then that brings us to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses is born... And Moses is again a new Adam. He's a new starting point. God calls him to go to Pharaoh and command Pharaoh to release the nation of Israel to go back to the promised land. God is going to be starting over. So we all know the story well. Pharaoh and Aaron, or Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no. Ten plagues follow. Pharaoh is pummeled by these plagues to the point where he has to let the nation of Israel go as the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt occurs. Pharaoh releases the nation of Israel. They travel out into the wilderness and they face the Red Sea like we talked about last week. And through the waters of judgment and darkness and fear, God parts the waters just as he did in Genesis 1, just as he did in Genesis 6. And he delivers his people into the promised land, into this new place, this new place of communing with him. He drowns, he wipes out, he wipes clean the wicked Egyptians as they drown. And they go into the wilderness. Now, this is where it gets interesting. As they go into the wilderness, God establishes a new covenant with them. Exodus chapter 20. That's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and the Covenant. Now hear me. Those are the laws and the ways that we should live in light of what the Garden State was. That's what the laws are. The Ten Commandments are what living in the Garden was like. Loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So God lays out this covenant in the Ten Commandments. But along with that, he establishes a meeting place with his people. A tabernacle. Within the covenant stipulations, God commands, I want to have a meeting place with you. And what I find fascinating about the tabernacle is as you read through the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, you find that it is filled with garden imagery. The tabernacle was a new temple in the midst of the wilderness where God had not left his people, but would continue to meet with his people love his people, and it was a little mini garden in the midst of the wilderness. God's intent and purpose is to rest with his people. The Holy Spirit, in Genesis chapter 1, intended the parting of the waters and the preparation of that temple in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in Exodus chapter 31, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who intends or who orders or who instructs the building of the tabernacle for Moses and the people of God. We read this. God 
saying to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. In other words, just as the Holy Spirit prepared that place of meeting for Adam and Eve, now in the book of Exodus... The Holy Spirit is preparing a tabernacle, a new place of meeting, a new place of God's presence to rest with his people. Only now it's going to come through the men, Bezalel and Oheliab, which, by the way, just as a parenthesis, I'm totally persuaded that there are Bezalels and Oheliabs sitting right in this congregation right now. Men and women who the Holy Spirit has filled and enabled in crafts, in framing, in plumbing, in electricians, and God is appointing you and calling you uh, to use your gifts to help us get into this property. I don't think that's being spiritually manipulative by any stretch of the imagination. I truly believe that God has appointed men and women in this church with particular gifts and particular skill sets to, to, to do the work that needs to be done here. And so we continue to pray and wait for provision and for those skill sets to rise up. The problem with the tabernacle was this. Access was limited. In the garden, there was unlimited access. There was unfiltered access with God. The tabernacle, though, the access was limited. In fact, only one man could go into the tabernacle and come into the presence of God, Moses. The rest of the people were separated. And so this little mini garden of Eden in the temple only allowed access to one man. And that access itself was limited. So limited and so intentful is the author of Exodus to tell us that this was a problem. That the book of Exodus ends this way. In Exodus chapter 40, let me read for you. The tabernacle has been built. God's presence is there to be resting with the people. And we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Listen, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words, the author of Exodus is telling us that God's presence had come just as it was in the garden. But there was a problem. The glory was too great and we were too sinful to come into that presence. When God's presence came, now because of our sin, not even Moses, not even the priests could actually enter into his presence. And so there's a narratival or there's a a dissonance in the story. There's a problem. There's a tension that's unresolved. How is God's creation going to come back into his presence? The story goes on and we pick up in the book of Leviticus very briefly. When you're reading Leviticus, Leviticus is the way that God makes to come back into his presence. Because we are impure, because of our sin, God makes a way through sacrifices and substitutes. The whole book of Leviticus is about God saying, I'm going to make a way for you to come back into my presence so you can rest with me. And you won't be able to do it yourself. Another is going to have to take your place. And in the case of Leviticus, it's lambs and goats and rams. 
bulls, pigeons, lots of blood flowing through the book of Leviticus. Lots of ideas of cleanliness. Lots of ideas of purity. Because when the glory comes in the tabernacle, the only means by which mankind can come back into his presence is to have purity gifted to them through the substitute sacrifice of another life. We're going to skip over the book of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel. We leap forward hundreds of years now. The nation of Israel has been traveling through the wilderness in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant has gone before them. They've gone into the promised land. And by the way, the promised land isn't an easy place to live. Don't think for a second, once we get into the building, oh, phew, we're finally into the building. Everything's going to be fine. No, it's going to be tough. Trust me. (laughs) They are in the promised land. They fought their wars. Young King David has left the hills of Judea as a shepherd and been anointed a king. And David has a dream. I want to get my church into a building, says David. (laughs) David wants to build a temple for the Lord. David wants to build a house for the glory of the Lord. So Nathan, David's kind of sidekick prophet, says to him, go for it. But that night, Nathan has a dream, comes back to David and says, you can't build the house of God. You're a man of blood, but your son Solomon will. Now listen to this. The book of Proverbs tells us that by wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. Solomon was the most wise man who ever lived. And it's Solomon's wisdom that establishes the temple. No longer a tabernacle like this, something that's mobile, but established the actual temple itself. So Solomon, with all of his riches and all of his wisdom, builds the most massive temple that has ever been built for the nation of Israel. Scholars say that this was one of the wonders of the world when it existed. Solomon pours all of his money and his expertise and his wisdom into it. But there's a similar setting. There's a similar tension in the big story of the Bible here. Because just like Moses, when the glory of the Lord came into the tabernacle and nobody could come into his presence. Let me read to you what happens. They finish the temple. They're praying and God's glory comes in. But listen to how the tension doesn't resolve. Second Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished His prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There it is, the Garden of Eden, God's presence coming to rest with his people, right? And the priests, Adam and Eve and Solomon's priests, listen, could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. We read that and we think the glory of the Lord filled the house. How wonderful. But the writer here is saying, They couldn't enter. It's a a statement of desperation almost. The garden so long ago lost and the issues between sinful humanity, impure, separated from their God, still hundreds of years later, millennia later, is still the main issue. So there's still these issues. We go on through through the rest of Kings and this is what happens. The temple is built, the glory comes, and just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, just like all the judges, just like all of the kings, the nation of Israel continues to worship other gods, 
to sin against Yahweh. They have their temple, but you read over and over and over in the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that the high places remained. And so rather than a fully committed devotional worship of Yahweh alone, there was the worship of Molech, the worship of whatever pagan god was out there. And so there's limited access to God because of our sin, and there's a lack of our awareness of his presence because we are continually given over to other gods. It's no different for us. So the prophets come along. We're getting close to the New Testament now. The prophets come along and they say, you have these high places. Yahweh wants to dwell with you and with you alone. He wants you to be fully committed to him with nothing like a marriage, nothing between you and your wife, nothing between you and your husband. This is the, and the prophets come and they say, God's going to remove the temple. God is jealous. He's not going to stand by idly while we worship other gods. He's going to take his presence away. So there's this funky, funky prophet called Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is this post-exile prophet. He sees this vision of these whirling wheels, the glory of God coming. (coughs) And Ezekiel continues to warn the people, if you continue worshiping other gods while you're pretending like you're worshiping Yahweh, he's going to leave. He's going to depart. And sure enough, midway through the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees this vision of the temple and God's glory leaving it. It's maybe one of the most tragic moments in all of the prophets. But as with all of the prophets, there's always in the midst of warning and the words of God's wrath, there's always the promise of hope. So in the same book in Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the presence of God leave the temple. And later, Ezekiel gives this vision of this perfect temple. It's measured out. It's immense. It's huge. And the sacrifices are being made willingly. And Zadok, this priest who didn't sin, is overseeing all of this temple. And out of this temple is overflowing this water. And one of the strangest promises is given in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel promises in the midst of God's glory being removed, in the midst of God's presence being removed, the most tragic time in the nation of Israel, Ezekiel promises something that the people could have never imagined. There's going to be a new temple. And he says this, I will give you, Ezekiel 36, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel promises that there's a time coming for the people of God where his presence will never be removed. His glory will never leave. His presence will take up residence, not in a particular place, but in the people themselves. 400 years of silence between the prophets and the gospels. Ezekiel goes silent. After this promise that the spirit will come and give his people a new heart and his presence will reside within his people. Total silence. Jesus comes on the scene and the gospel writers write this. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Those words there that John uses, you could literally translate them. And the word came and tabernacled amongst us. 
When Jesus came, the gospel writers tell us that he was the new tabernacle. He was the new temple. Jesus was the intermingling of heaven and earth in perfection come to humanity. Jesus was the presence of God himself come to humanity to meet with us. And they beheld his glory for the first time in the whole story of the Bible going clear back to Genesis 1. What's in Genesis 1? They behold the glory of God. They walk with him in the cool of the garden through the whole Old Testament. They couldn't go in. The glory was too great. The presence was too great. Sin separated them. Jesus shows up. And we have seen his glory. Jesus is the new presence of God. The new garden. The new intermingling of heaven and earth. Jesus would go on in John. And literally refer to himself as the new temple. He would tell the Pharisees. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Speaking of his own body. And so what we have in Jesus. From the garden of Eden. To the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the wanderings of the people to the temple of Solomon, to the destruction of the temple, to the second Judaism temple that we talked about last week that Ezra and Nehemiah built, that the glory never returned to that temple, to Jesus, is we have the fullness of the temple in Jesus. He is not only the presence and the meeting place of God, but listen, he's also the Levitical sacrifice within the temple. Because John tells us that this is the lamb who will take away our imperfections, our rebellion. Jesus is the temple and Jesus is the temple sacrifice. Jesus is the presence and Jesus is the means by which we are given access back into the presence of God. But the Bible doesn't end with the Gospels. Jesus goes to the cross for the sins of Adam all the way through to you. He is The temple where God meets and he is sacrificed on the cross as that substitute lamb. Making a way for us to come back into the presence of God. Making us pure where God's presence can come and rest in us. Jesus dies. He is buried. And three days later he resurrects. He ascends unto the father. But before he ascended he promised just like Ezekiel promised. I will send my spirit to be with you. The day of Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down and the church is born. And all of the fulfillment of those promises of the prophets. That there would be a temple without walls. That the dwelling place of God would not be a particular place or a particular building. But a particular people comes true. We now indwelt by the Holy Spirit are the temple in this world. Christians, hear this. You are the intermingling of heaven and earth here and now. Tomorrow when you go to work, you are the temple in your places of business. You are the mediating presence. You are the the garden of Eden. You are the priest. You are the presence there in that space and in that place. St. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 2. We're almost done. So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, separated from God's presence, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, now built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.
Guys, the presence of God isn't in this little tabernacle that we're under. The presence of God isn't in that building. We are the temple right here. You are the temple. And what's amazing to me is that the language Paul uses here of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place for the Spirit, is plural. It's plural. It's us together. This right here is what God intended for the Garden of Eden, the temple, the tabernacle. He intended his presence to come into a particular people and wash out over the entirety of the rest of the world. This is the centerpiece. This is the epicenter of God's intermingling of heaven and earth. That's trippy stuff, isn't it? (laughs) But do we think of ourselves as this way? Do we live in that vibrant reality that right now in this moment, heaven isn't out there. Heaven is right here in us together, a dwelling place for God. That's why the Bible instructs us to live in accord with what garden life would be. To live sexually pure lives. To live merciful lives one unto another. Forgiving each other. To live edifying lives that build each other up. Because this is the intermingling of heaven and earth. And Paul says this crazy thing. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2. He says angels and demons are watching. Not only folks that are getting their groceries this morning are watching. But angels and demons are watching the intermingling of heaven and earth right here. And they're scratching their heads going... Whoa, God is doing some crazy stuff with these little worms. These these little dust balls. Paul goes on and he says, in this idea of living out garden lifestyle and us being a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You and I are that temple. As we wrap up this morning, we close with the very last book of the Bible. Following this idea of tabernacle and temple. In Revelation chapter 21... John is seeing this super trippy vision of all sorts of stuff. He's seeing a new heaven, a new earth. He's seeing the city come down, the new Jerusalem. And what John is seeing is he's seeing a new garden state across all of the world. God's victory has been given in all of the world. Adam and Eve were told to go out and subdue the world. In Genesis chapter 21, it has happened. God the Holy Spirit has saved every human being that's ever going to be saved. And heaven has come to earth and earth has come to heaven. And this intermingling is no longer separated. Sin has been atoned for by the Lamb. And what we read in Genesis chapter 21 verse 22 is this. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Genesis 1, God dwelt, rested in the presence of his people. The entire arc of the story of God is him wanting to be with his people. We get to us, the church, the spirit indwells us. We are the temple. When it's all said and done, we're all resurrected. Heaven and earth intermingle. There's no more temple. God now is our presence. This is what we're heading for. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship. Next week we'll get into wilderness. We'll be back into our back into our mobile setting. I trust that 
what could be kind of abstract ideas, tomorrow morning, I, I want you to wake up. Tomorrow morning, for those of you that are like, man, what's the point of my job? What's the point of, of I'm just going to go and crunch numbers, or I'm just going to go swing a hammer. Don't diminish who you are and what you're doing in this world. Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, wake up and say, I am the intermingling of heaven and earth in this job site today. I am the intermingling of the presence of God in this place today and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. I trust that you guys will walk away from a session like this saying, man, when the church gathers, there's something powerful happening there. The intermingling of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you sovereignly kicked us out of our building so we could live in a tabernacle for a day and have so vividly illustrated for us this reality that your presence doesn't dwell in buildings built by men's hands, but your presence dwells in us. And God, this morning with all of my family here, we are praying that Burien and the South End would become the temple of God. We're praying that God, the intermingling of heaven and earth would come so powerfully in our city, so powerfully in our neighborhoods. Lord, from Alki to Redondo, from the sound across to the highest peaks of the Cascades, we are praying, God, for your Holy Spirit to come and make this place as the Garden of Eden. I feel prompted to read to you guys a passage from the book of Ezekiel that, that we read. This is, this is the passage that brought my wife and I to this city. <laughs> Thus says the Lord God. And this is in Ezekiel 36, the same passage that I read to you guys about us being indwelt by the Spirit. This is the passage that brought Alexis and I here to replant this precious little church to begin this journey. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. After eight years, we celebrate eight years being in this city, July 4th. I am more persuaded that this place is truly set up for one of the most thrilling, joy-giving, awe-inspiring, God-glorifying revivals in the world. We have, the, we have the nations right here in our parking lot. We can go get some Mexican over at Hector's and then we can go over to Wayne's. We, I mean, we have, got, we have got the spread of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity. And these cities that have been considered desolate, God wants to inhabit with his presence. And he wants this place to become a living temple to, to bring the world to him. The verse goes on and it says this, and we'll close with this and go to worship. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel and I'll let Taproot ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. 
like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I believe that God is asking us to pray, to pray for hundreds of thousands of people to become the indwelt temple. For us to be that, that water that goes out and I've had dreams of like rivers of people flowing through the streets and it's like rivers of saints and they're flowing through the streets up and down 152nd and 153rd and up and down first and down Ambom, there's just waves and waves of people. And wherever they go, there's like this cleanliness that follows them. There's this purity and God's presence and peace floods through the streets. That's us. It's us. Pray that way. Believe that way. Live that way. And in these seasons of wandering in the wilderness, embrace it. If you're in a season of wandering in the wilderness... Welcome to Top Root Church. <laughs> That's kind of where we're at. God is training us. He's humbling us. He's teaching us. He's preparing us. He's preparing us to inhabit these cities with the overflow of his love and the presence of his grace and mercy. Father, as we worship you today, I pray that heaven would break through right here into earth. God, I pray that heaven would break through the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven in the hearts of these saints in us together. And so we sing your praises today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this tent. Thank you for this family. Thank you for this goofy wilderness wandering season that we're in. Thank you for the, the desperate need that we have of you. We're begging you to provide for us. We're begging you to guide us and we're begging you to fill our churches in the south end, fill our churches like the flocks for sacrifice at Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people who have said, I give my life to Jesus as a sacrifice. I lay down my life. I am one of his sheep. And Jesus, thank you that you are the temple and the sacrifice that brings us back into the presence of God. That we need not look for your presence. You indwell us even in this moment. And so you paid it all. So we exalt you and praise you, ask that you would draw many, many, many to come and surrender to you in every way. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Let's worship.